Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. March marks one year since the initial COVID-19 lockdowns in the United States. And in the past few months, we have seen the much anticipated forward progress in vaccine approvals and vaccination numbers. We've still got a long way to go, but we're heading in the right direction. The practice of medicine is also marching forward in this rapidly changing COVID-19 landscape. And as a result, healthcare workers are in the midst of ushering in a new era in patient care an era with increasing personalized treatment planning and decreasing points of contact. In this episode, we're dialing in on what surgeons and other professionals consider to be the most essential surgical and business solutions to propel ophthalmology practices into the next era of patient care. I'm Laura Straub, and you're listening to CRST, the podcast. There is no denying that thorough preoperative planning is essential to achieve excellent outcomes in both refractive and cataract surgery. Carl G. Stonecipher, Director of Refractive Surgery at TLC in Greensboro, North Carolina, was one of nine surgeons to share their processes and pearls for preoperative surgical planning in the March issue of CRST. Dr. Stonecipher joins us in this episode to share his thoughts. You know, Steve Jobs once said, quality is better than quantity. One home run is much better than two doubles. Along those lines, I'm a firm believer in treating every patient like a member of my family. And I've operated on my mother, my mother-in-law, my father, my father-in-law, aunt, brother, nephews, nieces, and more. Treating patients like family steers me well, even when a complication arises. All of my patients have an opportunity to select the best I have to offer, and all of them undergo the same preoperative workup. So let's talk a little bit about the workup. Every patient undergoes a 90-second workup by my staff that includes screening with the ocular surface disease index, followed by fluorescein stain to evaluate the tear breakup time, and lysamine green stain to evaluate the conjunctiva. If the findings are positive for the ocular surface disease, the consultation goes forward, but the examination is limited, surgery is scheduled, and the ocular surface disease treatment is initiated. The prospective health assessment of cataract patients' ocular surface study that we were a part of demonstrated that many patients presenting for refractive surgery have significant dry eye disease. The same is true of a significant number of patients presenting for refractive surgery. Many of them are coming in because what? They can't wear their glasses or contact lenses anymore. So let's talk about refractive surgery. The COVID-19 pandemic led my staff and me to change our approach to the preoperative evaluation. The wavefront and manifest refractions are obtained after topography, tomography, and wavefront diagnostics are performed. Instead of a cycloplegic examination, we use the CenterView DRS Plus Fundus Imaging System, which is made by iCare, for the retinal evaluation of the majority of my patients. But we will perform cycloplegia for patients with more than minus 8 diopters of myopia, those with mixed astigmatism, and those with hyperopia. A prospective study we conducted found that these changes produced no statistical difference in our results. So basically, we looked at post-operative day one results, compared those to three months. We looked at 1,026 cases, and our enhancement rate was 0.29% for the whole group. And our uncorrected visual acuity 
at one hour was very similar, with 2020 and 62% of the patients and 2015 and 6% of the patients. That's at one hour. These patients are doing phenomenal. So the one week and the one month postoperative visits are conducted for us by telehealth appointments. And we're going to probably continue that after COVID. We feel that those two visits are important to check in with the patient, and we have a questionnaire to do that with. But at the same time, we feel that risking staff members and exposure of the patients is not warranted. Again, at the three-month visit, a complete examination is performed, of course, for nomogram maintenance. So we still feel like we want to look at the data and the numbers, and our studies in the past have shown that the three-month visit is best for nomogram maintenance. So let's talk about refractive cataract surgery for a moment. All patients that I see are treated as if they've selected a premium channel package, and I explain to them how I would proceed if they were members of my family. A patient care coordinator then breaks down the pricing model for them. More than 80% of my patients choose a premium channel, whether that includes the use of a femtosecond laser, the ocular response analyzer or aura, or whether they choose premium IOLs. All patients are evaluated with an OCT of the optic nerve and retina, biometry, wavefront analysis, and topography before seeing me. Animations are used to educate them about the process and their options prior to seeing me. So my staff is instructed to make sure they understand what's going on prior before I even walk in the door. All these diagnostic information is entered into an EMR system and shown to the patients during their examination. We also like to use the Checked Up Patient Engagement Platform to educate our patients, and we provide them with QR codes so they can access the information remotely to discuss with their families. I follow Lynn's Power Guidelines developed by my heroes, Jack Holliday and Warren Hill, and attribute my successful outcomes really a lot to those two, in addition to Doug Koch, who's taught me throughout the, the years. My staff and I scrutinize angles alpha and kappa, keratometric standard deviations, root mean square hydro aberrations, and corneal surface irregularities. Patients who have an irregular corneal surface are not offered an extended depth of focus or trifocal intraocular lens. I personalize my lens constants and use the fourth generation IO power calculation formulas developed by Graham Barrett, Dr. Hill, and Dr. Holliday for all patients. Residual refractive errors and postoperative ocular surface disease are treated ag aggressively. Patients generally see well as soon as an hour after surgery, as I mentioned earlier. My current enhancement rate for this premium IOL channel platform is only 1.6%. I want to say that again. In all of my patients that we're treating, we're only coming back and touching those patients up in 1.6% of those patients. And I think that's an important point because those are happy patients if they're not coming back in 98 to 99% of the cases. Data collection is imperative and an important part of my refractive cataract practice. So I'd like to conclude with a couple things. I currently co-manage patients with more than 500 physicians. These providers understand that I'm dedicated to treating their patients just as if I were operating on them or one of their family members. And actually, Many of my referring doctors have given me the opportunity to operate on them or their family members. With a committed staff and a committed surgeon, 
delivering 20 happy results can be part of our routine. Another area that is emerging in this new era of patient care is the application of AI and big data in ophthalmology. Ji Peng Olivia Lee from Moorfields Eye Hospital in London shares with us a preview of innovations and ideas in the spaces of machine learning and deep learning. Interest in AI is exploding. The science of developing computer systems to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence is a broad field that encompasses visual perception, speech recognition, and decision-making. The areas where AI is having the greatest impact in healthcare include machine learning and deep learning. Machine learning is based upon statistical methods. Algorithms are used to process vast amounts of labeled data to find patterns and learn from experience without being specifically programmed to do so. Deep learning is a subfield of machine learning. The multi-layered processing structure mimics the human brain with convolutional neural networks, which are capable of learning from unlabeled data in a supervised or unsupervised manner. Ophthalmology, radiology and dermatology are at the forefront of image-based diagnosis, which is particularly suited to machine learning techniques. Within ophthalmology, Algorithms for diagnosing retinal disease from fundus photography and, more recently, OCT images are by far the most advanced examples of this digital revolution. The FDA has approved the use of IDX-DR, an algorithm used to screen patients for diabetic retinopathy, and the Imaging and Informatics in Retinopathy of Prematurity System, IROP-DL, received FDA breakthrough status for diagnosing retinopathy of prematurity. A wealth of data are readily available through retinal screening programs for diabetic retinopathy and retinopathy of prematurity. In contrast, challenges relating to the quality and quantity of baseline data have slowed advances in the use of AI for the anterior segment. Additional obstacles relate to the consistency and reproducibility of imaging techniques and the accessibility of raw topographic and tomographic images. As technologies improve and their availability becomes more widespread, however, researchers will become better able to elucidate the potential benefits of AI for the anterior segment. Our article and those that follow it provide examples of this work. AI platforms using slit lamp images have been shown to vastly improve the productivity of these screening services. More widespread adoption of these platforms could have a major impact on patient care in regions where ophthalmology services are limited. Machine learning can also improve the refractive accuracy of cataract surgery. Algorithms can be refined through training involving comparisons of pre- and post-operative anterior segment OCT images to increase the accuracy with which the effective lens position is predicted. Devices such as the Pentacam use indices that help clinicians estimate the risk of disease progression. Efforts are underway to incorporate more data into algorithms and to use machine learning techniques to determine the likelihood of disease progression. The Pentacam, 
Cassia SS1000 OCT, OrbScan, and Corvus ST are some of the devices being used to collect data to train, test, and validate these algorithms. Machine learning also holds promise for improving the early diagnosis of subclinical keratoconus. With monitoring, the database of topographic and other measurements will grow and provide the information required by machine learning algorithms to make accurate diagnosis. In time, AI may be able to predict the extent of disease progression and the response to collagen crosslinking. The development of ectasia after laser refractive surgery is a dreaded complication, explaining the great interest in developing effective methods of screening patients for undetected underlying ectatic diseases. Several researchers are studying the use of machine learning techniques and the modern topographers for this purpose. Machine learning can also be used to enhance the patient experience by increasing the accuracy with which post-operative outcomes are predicted. At present, accuracy is lower for patients with high myopia and astigmatism, but it may improve over time as more data become available for training algorithms. Infectious keratitis is a major cause of corneal opacification globally, and the causative organisms vary geographically. The diagnostic ability of existing methods such as corneal scrapes with microscopy polymerase chain reaction, culture, staining, and confocal microscopy is unsatisfactory in real-world clinical settings. AI may prove helpful for diagnosis. Standard photographs and anterior segment OCT scans are being used to train algorithms with some success. AI may assist the diagnosis of fungal and acanthamoeba keratitis. Being able to use standard photographs to diagnose corneal ulcers would have a major impact on the provision of emergency eye services, and it could facilitate the judicial use of antimicrobial treatments and reduce delays in the initiation of effective therapy. Photography-based diagnosis with AI would be beneficial in areas with limited resources and ophthalmologists. It also has a role in the provision of remote telemedicine services, the utility of which became more apparent than ever during the current pandemic. Deep learning has also been used in the remote diagnosis of pterygium. These algorithms have been combined with telemedicine services and platforms to counsel patients on treatment options. Advances in this use of AI may be especially beneficial in areas served by few ophthalmologists. Automated segmentation is being investigated, with some success in specular microscopy for the identification and assessment of corneal endothelial cells. Currently, endothelial cell counts and the evaluation of the variations in cell size and hexagonality rely on inbuilt software that defines cells in an automated fashion. Results obtained with this software often correspond poorly with those obtained through manual segmentation, a process that simplifies images by labeling meaningful boundaries. Segmentation of the corneal endothelium becomes more challenging when the image quality is poor and the endothelium is diseased, yet clear information on the state of the endothelium is particularly important in these situations. Deep learning has been used to identify areas where cells can be segmented and evaluated as reliably as with human assessors, 
and better than with some existing inbuilt software models. Further validation in real-world models of corneal disease states after graft surgery could lead to the wider adoption of endothelial assessment in routine practice because of the ease and accuracy of analysis. Early AI studies in glaucoma relied on the interpretation of fundus photographs and disc images. Since then, the advent of anterior segment OCT has greatly improved clinicians' understanding of angle anatomy. Both machine learning and deep learning techniques have been used to diagnose angle closure glaucoma, including classification of its subtypes. Real-world validation of research results is required. The influence of race and ethnicity on patients' risks of developing angle closure glaucoma must be taken into account when evaluating algorithms trained on specific populations, and particularly if the reporting of race and ethnicity is lacking. Because machine learning is capable of identifying previously unknown associations, the data sets used for training must be carefully designed and selected to avoid potential bias. AI has the potential to facilitate the diagnosis and monitoring of systemic diseases using slit lamp photography. The evaluation of conjunctival photographs has been shown to be an accurate, non-invasive method of diagnosing anemia. Recently, investigators have demonstrated that the conjunctiva, sclera, and iris can be used to identify patients with hepatobiliary disease, particularly liver cancer and cirrhosis. For AI to uncover previously unknown associations is exciting as is the possibility that deep learning systems will be able to make more accurate diagnoses than the clinician in certain instances. The COVID-19 pandemic has had some unexpected upsides, including a growing interest in refractive surgery. Troy Cole, co-founder of Logical Consulting, reveals strategies for ophthalmologists to take advantage of the current refractive wave happening now in many markets across the world. My friend, the pandemic pillaged your practice, but you survived. Nice work. Now, let's talk about how to thrive in this brave new world. This time is loaded with opportunity. No, COVID-19 isn't over. A new normal is here, however, and it's time to take advantage of it. This podcast describes the three most important actions that you can take right now to future-proof your practice, increase your surgical volume, and take advantage of the refractive wave hitting many markets across the globe. You know, something unusual happened after the lockdowns began to be lifted early in the summer of 2020. Interest in refractive surgery started to grow. Despite the uncertainty surrounding COVID-19, or perhaps in part because of it, people began to feel an increased desire to improve their vision. Anyone who says they know exactly why this is happening is telling tall tales as we say in Texas. But based on my company's data and hundreds of conversations with practices and with patients, these are the most probable factors. Number one, foggy glasses. Anyone who wears glasses knows that wearing a mask means those lenses are going to fog up and impair your vision. People are frustrated with that. They're fed up with it. They want a better solution. Number two, eye touching. All right, so COVID-19 is spreading. People are washing their hands like their lives depend on it, which they do. And some people who wear contact lenses, they just don't want to deal with repositioning their contacts multiple times a day, touching their eyes, risking infection. 
Number three, increase convenience in lifestyle. People can work from home, shop for groceries from home, order food from restaurants from their home, and even work out at home. Some of those with poor vision are starting to ask, why am I still fixing my vision the old way? And then number four is fear. None of us knows exactly what the future holds or if the apocalypse is right around the corner. The fear of the unknown is driving some individuals to fix things that they can control. In this case, their vision. Now, how long will the so-called refractive wave last? There's no way to tell, and opportunity waits for no one. So if you take one thing away from this podcast, let it be this. The opportunity to convert potential patients into actual patients is right now, and you need to take advantage of it. Now let's look at the three most effective ways to get more patients in your door and grow your surgical volume right now. Number one, leverage convenience. The pandemic has forced consumers to change their behaviors, and it's triggered a massive transition to home-centric consumerism. All right, you look at things like virtual workouts like Peloton, on-demand grocery delivery like Instacart, and even work-from-home accessibility with Zoom. These are all commonplace today, which caused two major mental shifts in consumer behavior. Mental shift number one is people thinking, man, I can do a lot more from home than I thought. Easy access to technology, including smartphones, has helped people to realize they don't have to leave home nearly as much as they used to. And people like that. There is a challenge, however. This mental shift makes coming into your practice for an initial consultation a bigger hurdle for many people. They have to get up, they have to get dressed, they have to drive across town to see you. And this may seem silly, but that's a much bigger ask than saying, hey, could you come in for your consultation on your way home from work? Many potential patients still prefer to come in for a consultation, just like they prefer to go to the grocery store. But the point is that some members of society won't return to the grocery store, won't return to the gym, won't go back to the office because they are afraid and or they simply realize they don't have to. And you need to be able to serve this group of prospective patients. Mental shift number two. People thinking, man, I really, really like these new conveniences. Throughout history, convenience has driven innovation. From the original Model T car, to climate control, to power windows, to heated seats, to 360-degree backup cameras. All right? Think about it. Amazon is another great example. They offer conveniences of being a one-stop shop with one-click purchasing and fast delivery. The applicable question to your ophthalmic practice is this. How do you make your offerings more convenient to consumers? First and foremost, you need to adopt a hybrid consultation model that allows you to market, schedule, and facilitate two types of consultations, in-person and virtual. It's not either or, it's both. When marketed and executed properly, this hybrid online connectivity model allows you to tap into a new subset of convenience-focused patients. People have found new ways to gain convenience in their lives, and that's exactly what vision correction offers them. And the journey toward vision correction needs to be convenient as well. Number two in our three most effective ways to get more patients in your door right now is to level up your team's communications and sales skills. Another opportunity to increase patient volume in your practice lies in your team's ability to communicate value 
to prospective patients. Too often, the assumption is that, hey, the team's doing okay if the practice is busy. Doing okay turns some new patient opportunities into book surgeries. But if you want to grow your surgical volume, and if you want to charge premium prices for your procedures, and you should because that's the best way to serve your patients, then it takes more than doing okay. One way to increase your ability to grow your volume is to develop your phone and counselor teams. I've worked with hundreds of teams over the years, and I can't name a single practice whose staff didn't benefit from sales and communications training, even if they were already high performers. I guarantee you're losing prospective patients every single day, particularly on the phones. Training your team to better identify and manage new patient opportunities will help increase the number of patients going onto your surgery schedule, without a doubt. And the third and final way to effectively increase your surgery volume right now is to leverage the patient journey. A recent prospect attended a refractive surgery consultation. He was a great candidate for surgery, and the surgeon took the time to explain the patient's options in detail. But in the end, that patient was wide-eyed and speechless. This scenario I described happens in practices across the country, and it's called choice paralysis. It's most likely to occur at two key points in the patient journey, which I'll describe in a moment. There are strategies for educating your patients and addressing their concerns during the preoperative consultation without overwhelming them. Let's talk about those two types of key points in the patient journey. Number one are the decision points. These are just what it sounds like. Decision points are the times that a patient makes a decision. So the decision points include a patient's decision to call you, their decision to book or not book an evaluation, their decision to show up for the consultation, to undergo surgery, etc. The second type of key point are the incubation periods. Now these are the times between decision points. So you have decision points and you have incubation periods. When a patient calls your practice at 1 p.m. on Monday and books a consultation for 11 a.m. on Wednesday, the 46 hours between those two decision points is the incubation period. Now the magic lies here in the incubation periods, which should be leveraged as times to educate patients, build rapport, and create excitement about their next decision point. And look, there are many ways that we do this for our clients. It can be accomplished through videos, through custom videos, through personalized email messages, through sending articles to the prospective patients. There's lots of ways you can make it happen. The goal here is to pre-educate the patient on your practice's offerings and on your practice as a whole. This strategy also builds familiarity and rapport so that the patient is primed, excited, and ready to make a decision by the time they get to your consultation room. In conclusion, a massive opportunity lies before you right now. How long will the refractive wave last? Well, that's anyone's guess. You can't control that, but you can control your practice by positioning your team to serve more patients and change your more lives. Share this podcast with your administrator, with your marketing team, with your salespeople, and I want you to get out there and serve your patients. As crazy as this past year has been, your patients need you now more than ever. Finally, Isabel Bibet Kalinyak, a partner at McDonald Hopkins in Cleveland, provides an update on private equity transactions in the ophthalmology sector and shares some advice for surgeons interested in preparing their practices for a potential future transaction.
One year ago, as the number of COVID-19 cases surged, the avid interest of private equity investors in the U.S. healthcare sector suddenly came to a halt as they watched the industry mobilize against the COVID-19 virus. Emerging transactions came to a standstill. Mergers, acquisitions, and private equity deals were placed on hold indefinitely or fell apart. And the courtships between practice owners across all healthcare specialties, private equity funds, strategic buyers, and investment bankers largely stopped. All stakeholders wondered if, when, and how the healthcare industry would rebound. The halt of private equity's interest in healthcare was brief and confined mostly to the second quarter of 2020, but it had consequences for the eye care sector at multiple levels. Unlike in dermatology, consolidation in the eye care sector had just started heating up in early 2020. Following the temporary halt in elective surgeries in the second quarter of 2020, most ophthalmologists had returned to operating by the third quarter of that year. Making quickly rebounded after the halt in the second quarter and lasted into the end of the year. Several transactions that had been put on hold at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic resumed, some of which closed by the year's end ahead of concerns over future tax changes. Number of eye care deals that closed in 2020, a total of 31, indicates that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the consolidation in eye care only minimally. Mergers and acquisitions professionals report an uptick in deals nearing pre-COVID-19 levels. This is in part because eye care enterprises, more than other specialties, have demonstrated extraordinary resistance to COVID-19 and velocity in recapturing pre-COVID-19 productivity levels during the pandemic. Current private equity investments are an estimated 2.5 trillion, and about 25% of that is allotted for healthcare. With this amount of potential investment, small and large eye care providers in the United States and internationally will continue to be pursued aggressively for acquisition in 2021. Routes for consolidation include partnering with majority or minority private equity partners, joining an established platform, establishing a new platform, adding locations, or staying independent. Private equity investors are also interested in the ophthalmic devices market. Multiple factors fuel the velocity of mergers, acquisitions, and partnerships in the healthcare sector. The macro level, revenue for the physician specialty is expected to grow at an annualized rate of 2% through 2024. This is the result of the following. Growing and aging demographics. Over 50% and growth 
of revenue generated by private health insurance payments, improved access to health care, advances in technology, and consolidation. Additional drivers include the fragmentation of the physician practice sector, particularly within the eye care segment, the reduction of in-house clinical specialty service lines across hospitals and health systems, and the symbiotic relationships between these hospitals and health systems and independent practices to deliver value-based care. The eye care sector, and in particular ophthalmology, is growing at 4 to 5% per year. At the micro level, this represents a vastly untapped and compelling investment opportunity for private equity, even in the midst of the pandemic. The approximately 40 billion eye care industry is positioned to benefit from the convergence of two key trends, an increase in the demand for services based on a growing and aging patient population and a demonstrated shortage of ophthalmologists, driving compensation and competition for talent recruitment and retention. The operational complexity of managing multiple practice locations and specialties, for example, retina, corneal disease, glaucoma, cataract surgery, refractive surgery, optometry, optical. The pressure to increase per patient revenue by adding specialist and ambulatory surgical center services to amortize escalating costs the recurring investments in medical and operational technology, for example, electronic medical records, telemedicine, call centers, the need to constantly improve marketing efficiency to maintain or grow market share, and the importance of market density to negotiate payer contracts are additional elements that will precipitate consolidation will come either in the form of private equity investments or practice aggregation through supergroups or local mergers. With a few exceptions, such as the Cleveland Clinic Coal Eye Institutes, hospitals and health systems are not participating in this trend. Private equity firms view eye care as a fragmented market ripe for consolidation through bolt-on acquisitions and platform investments, but the COVID-19 pandemic is directly affecting the current financial structure of private equity transactions. It is often the case in mergers and acquisitions, larger scale, all else being equal, means larger value. Generally speaking, Physician specialty practices with the following normalized earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization will garner multiples as follows. Under 3 million, 5 to 7 times multiples. 3 to 5 million, 7 to 9 times multiples. 5 to 10 million, nine to 10 times multiples, and more than 10 million, greater than 10 times multiples. At the beginning of 2021, 
investment bankers reported downward pressure on the multiples in the range of 10 to 15% for large practices and 20 to 25% for small practices. As a result, private equity is concentrating investments on bigger and more capitalized platforms. It is seeking to replicate one consumer-centric model across targeted geographies and capture the full spectrum of pathologies and surgical, office-based, and aesthetic eye care treatments under one umbrella. A number of bigger platforms that were on the market before the pandemic are not yet back on the market. As a result of the current decline in multiples, private equity investors may need to keep their ventures longer to recoup their investments. Only time will tell how long this trend will persist, but it may provide an edge to strategic buyers over private equity over the midterm. Nevertheless, valuations for top quality eye care platforms remain largely unaffected by COVID-19 due to high demand and low supply. In addition to its effect on multiples and the pace and shape of consolidation, the COVID-19 pandemic is having a ripple effect on the risk tolerance of buyers. In short, buyers will typically overlook 2020 and either use 2019 as a performance benchmark or account for some form of credit for the negative effects of COVID-19. They now also, however, place more structure and conditions on the proceeds of the transaction, such as the use of additional rollover equity, 20 to 30 percent, a higher degree of financing, deferral of a portion of the purchase price, and earnouts as a mechanism to pay all or part, most common, of the purchase price after the closing based on the performance of the seller's business in the hands of the buyer. These new contingencies may bridge the purchase price gap between buyers and sellers and allow buyers to ensure that the business will perform as expected after the dip in the revenue as a result of COVID-19. Sellers should also scrutinize the methodology and conditions of the earnouts to maximize their ability to receive the full amount of the earnout during the prescribed post-closing period. From a risk standpoint, more indemnification claims from the COVID-19 era deals are likely, potentially leading to contractual post-closing purchase price adjustments. The core transactional and structural changes that stem directly from the risks associated with COVID-19 are expected to persist after the pandemic, adding technical complexity and risks to already complicated transaction processes. On a positive note, distressed asset sales are not expected in the eye care market, unlike in retail and other healthcare segments, including long-term care and critical care hospitals. Eye care practice owners can take advantage of the following pragmatic recommendations. One, 
Multiples and valuations may have slipped, but they are expected to rebound slowly after the pandemic. This is an opportune time to study your options carefully and stay apprised of market trends. Even if you are not currently looking to sell, you can prepare your practice for a potential transaction in the future. Some suggestions are outlined in the accompanying sidebar. Adopting these fundamental proactive measures is likely to increase the value of future offers and reduce transaction expenses. Two, you do not need to sell and you do not need to sell now. You can keep practicing as you are and plan to grow organically on your own. It is important, however, to educate yourself about opportunities and remain aware of risks for your practice, such as the rise of a large ophthalmology platform in your area. Three, do not initiate any process unless and until all the practice owners agree to commit to a potential deal. Failure to obtain consensus at the outset can negatively affect the deal terms, prolong negotiations, increase transaction costs, and damage shareholder relationships. Four, if you are approached by a potential buyer, do not leap at the first opportunity even if the offer is attractive. Assess multiple offers by yourself or through an investment banker. Five, beware of buyers that lowball your business value, pressure you to lock in an exclusive deal quickly, denigrate the value of engaging an investment banker or lawyer, and or pressure you to move forward at an uncomfortable pace for you or your partners. These are generally red flags. You should conduct due diligence about the buyer. Six, confidentiality is essential. Refrain from giving an inquiring party confidential information without a non-disclosure or confidentiality agreement and carefully assess how to protect against the unwanted disclosure of deal negotiations that can lead to concern within your practice and potential loss of key personnel. Seven, do not sign a document without legal counsel or advice from an experienced investment banker. Letters of intent ink key deal terms that can be tough to walk back and typically contain some exclusive dealing language that prohibits discussions with another party for a period of 90 to 120 days. Eight, purchase price is only one of the numerous elements of any deal. Other crucial elements to consider include the following are the structure and terms of the purchase price, including the total amount, the portion paid in cash, the portion attributable to ownership in the buyer's entity, earnouts, or any other at-risk amounts. Does the buyer have a high regard for proper clinical practice? Do you respect the other providers who have already joined the buyer? Do you like and trust the buyer? 
Does the buyer's strategic vision match yours? Do you anticipate a clash of cultures? What will happen to your staff and your practice locations? What are the key financial and other terms of employment, including how long you have to commit to be employed by the buyer, and if you leave, what non-compete restrictions will you be subject to? Does the buyer have appropriate advisors, for example, healthcare compliance attorneys, investment bankers, etc.? Ophthalmology and optometry will remain the target of private equity investors for the foreseeable future. Does private equity bring opportunity or illusion? To answer this question, boost your understanding of private equity-led merger and acquisition transactions and do not let your uninformed peers and partners influence your judgment. Private equity firms are adapting quickly to the success of building practices. Increased alignment with physicians, risk sharing, and established infrastructure for growth are valued much more highly by private equity firms than even a couple years ago. Only you can decide if a private equity deal is right for you and your practice. Preparing your practice for a potential future transaction. Make sure your business is properly structured under applicable state law for maximum tax benefit at closing and have all your organizational and other corporate documents in order, including employment contracts and ownership agreements. Analyze the compliance of your coding and billing practices and business relationships with referring physicians and suppliers. Analyze the compliance of your provider compensation and profit distribution methodologies, especially as applicable to services provided at ambulatory surgery centers, professional fees versus facility fees, for example. Implement, where legally permissible, Restrictive covenants such as non-compete, non-disclosure, and non-solicitation agreements with key clinical and non-clinical owners, professionals, and staff. Put sound and accurate financial systems in place. Obtain a quality of earnings analysis from a reputable accounting firm and an external coding audit which are considered best practices in private equity deals. Thanks for listening to this month's episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to crstoday.com to read more content from this special issue on essential surgical and business solutions in ophthalmology.